Create, connect, communicate. Create, connect, communicate. Magical, enigmatical, gift of gab, super, super agile, story, story from the space man. Come well lit. <laughs> This sounds good. Okay. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is actually how it, I sound exactly. according to the system. So as long as I can kind of hear myself. See, like right there. Yeah. Then I you won't. You might have to kind of raise your voice a little bit. Yeah. But I think it sounds really good. Okay. Oh, look at that. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my team. goodness. So hello, ladies and gentlemen. We are here with another episode of Firelight Chats. We are here in the Space Lab with a very special guest. Miss Karen Chan. Heyo. Applause. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Thank she, you, Kane. Yes, of course. Thank you very much for coming in today on your on a busy Monday morning. I had to talk to several secretaries to get a hold of you. And oh, finally, stop. we oh, made it stop. happen. No, no, no. It's not even <laughs> that early on a Monday. It's Monday afternoon almost. You are a busy woman, I think. Hi how I'm okay. Hi how I'm okay. okay. I try to keep it together. <laughs> so Karen Chen is the founder and CEO of a edtech company called Sensei or OK Sensei. Yeah, it's technically Sensei, but Sensei is taken up by a, I believe, Jamaican music website. So we had to get OKSensei.com oh. as the domain name. That's funny. Yes. A Jamaican music site. It's music very site. it's like probably built in the 90s. I think they sell CDs or oh, wow. did sell CDs. <laughs> um we tried to buy the domain but didn't get a response. Could not get sensei.com. So mm. we had to do okay sensei which we went with because it's still kind of, you know, rolls off your tongue okay. It has like some rhyme to it. Mm. Um but technically it's just sensei. Okay, sensei. And then, of course, it's spelled uh, differently from, I guess, the origin, which is a Japanese term, meaning yeah. teacher, sensei, yeah. which would be S-E-N-S-E-I, yeah, yeah. Romanized in, in English. Um, but why is it spelled differently, Karen? I mean, it actually, I can't take credit for the name. It was this woman I was working with in the very beginning who was sort of our first CTO when we were, even before we had an MVP. Um, her husband came up with the idea for sensei because um, S-A-Y, you know, it's like speaking, talking, which is what our product does. And it was just a play on that word teacher because in a way we are sort of like an AI teacher mm. or, or at least a supplement tool for, te for real teachers. Um, so we just thought it was a nice play on words. Nice. So on your website here, it says speaking English Confidently is a barrier for many. Sensei partners with teachers to increase opportunities for students to practice speaking English. Our technology and platform helps students to gain confidence speaking and helps educators to achieve progress faster and more effectively. So can you tell us a little bit about Sensei, this ed tech company that you founded? I don't know. I can do it better than you, Kane, with your <laughs> radio announcer voice. That's like, can I just take that as a marketing piece and yeah. kind of put it yeah, on our... Yeah, we can. We'll wow, make a clip. Wow, that was, that was... You should be a voice actor. Like, you really? just made it sound so good. Yeah. Thank you. It's like Thank such, a, you. such a nice announcer voice. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, that's basically Sensei in a nutshell. We are a technology tool that allows teachers to create speaking exercises for students. Mm. Um, so we just wanted to help students to have more opportunities to practice speaking English when they don't live in an English speaking environment. So very much like Taiwan, mm. the only chances the students really have to practice speaking on a daily frequent basis is probably in their English classroom or with a private tutor, which is definitely not enough practice time, especially if you want like something very cost effective. Mm. And now with voice technology, it just seemed like a no brainer to put the two together to enable students to practice on their own time at their convenience and not to be embarrassed or afraid if, you know, they're speaking in like a classroom environment, for example. This was just a thing that we thought maybe there's something here where we can use technology to help the teachers out and the students out. So what was the kind of impetus behind starting this? Did you see a need in, in the market, especially, I guess, in the uh, local Taiwanese market? Yeah, 100%. So I was working for a multinational company in Taiwan. Their office is in Taipei, maybe 200 plus employees. And, you know, it's a pretty, you know, coveted job, very much a, a nice office job type of environment. And I noticed how my colleagues very educated, very smart, hardworking people were great at their jobs. But whenever it came to having to communicate in English, whether it was through like a presentation or a phone call, you know, even like a visit from our international visitors, there was like this immense like fear. And it was a big pain point. People were like using Google Translate to put in Chinese and then translate into English and then start memorizing and almost like come up with a script of what they were going to say during their presentations. And I just couldn't help but be like, why? I don't understand because obviously, can you know, being in the education space, it's a thriving private industry here in Taiwan and in many parts of Asia where parents are throwing so much money, time and resources into this type of English education for their students, for their children. And put through a decade plus of education, even in the public school realm. But when they come out as adults, they're in the working world. Speaking, especially speaking, is still a big barrier for a lot of folks. And so it was through that observation of my colleagues that I was kind of scratching my head, thinking why um, was this still such a big pain point when there was like so much time and money being spent on English education. And then I did like a year's worth of kind of like field research, you know, mm. talk, talking to like interviewed all my colleagues, talked to parents, talked to teachers, visited both public schools and private schools, um, went to cram schools. You know, I, I went to look at the like entire landscape for language learning in Taiwan and did a lot of research to just kind of figure out and mine away at this problem. And there's many different problems. So I, I don't claim that like Sensei, you know, is the one stop shop that will like solve all the problems and, and use Sensei and it's like guaranteed all your issues are gonna go away. Definitely not. But just the problem that we honed in on was really around the lack of opportunities to practice. So we kind of liken fluency and comfort and confidence speaking a different language to like exercising at the gym. Mm. Um, it's really hard to build that muscle, whether it's like muscle memory or whatnot, to speak fluently if you're not practicing it on right. a pretty regular basis to build up that level of fluency in a language. And I definitely experienced that learning Mandarin myself, mm. you know, so I can understand it from the opposite point of view. And any language learner pretty much is going to, I think, affirm that and say, yeah, like when I don't have opportunities to actually practice speaking language, I lose it if I'm not in that environment. 
Right. Taiwan has compulsory English education from pretty much the get-go, right? And as you alluded to, there's a huge, thriving private education market. Parents are getting it in the school, and they're also paying for it outside of school. But what you're alluding to is by the time they reach college and even enter a really huge company like the company you work for, GSK, a huge multinational pharmaceutical company, but you still found that these kind of high-level, talented young people were very nervous or had difficulty speaking in English. Yeah, absolutely. And it was mostly like a mindset thing mm -hmm. and also a habit thing. So um, one of my projects as part of that job, I was, so I was like the chief of staff to the GM for the Taiwan office of GSK. And one of my projects was to create like an English first culture in the office, believe it or not, because she didn't mm. um, speak any Mandarin and she wanted the company to be much more like international and adopt an English first kind of mindset, both probably for her own purposes, like being able to interact with her team better. And also because of what you're saying, like you have colleagues all around the world that you work with that on a daily basis, English has to be more at the forefront instead of like an afterthought and you only prepare when you have those like meetings mm. so i did go through and we started with like the sales and marketing teams to get them more um, used to and in the habit of holding their meetings in english for example mm. um, setting different roles and responsibilities during those meetings so everyone had like a role during the meeting and i believe one of them was kind of like a, an english monitor not to like ding people mm -hmm. if they didn't but just like to gently remind I'm not going to say it was like an easy transition, but it was very fast. I think much faster than most people had anticipated. I would say in like two months, three months, everyone in the office, again, we started with sales and marketing, but even in other departments, it became much more like normal to use English oh, wow. in their like daily, daily work. Okay. So you spearheaded this campaign? Yeah, it was like kind of went along with another like workforce transformation thing where uh, they took away your desk. So, mm. they, so the, the <laughs> office turned into this like open workspace where you could sit wherever. Okay. So there was a lot of different like change agendas that were on the like global List. level yeah okay. like the so like the global headquarters had these like things that they wanted implemented down in the locs so like the local operating companies and one of them was this whole office desk thing where you could sit anywhere and like have chance encounters like in theory it sounds it you sounds know, very progressive yeah like awesome. in theory it's like you could have chance encounters and like imagine if like r d could sit with like regulatory and like regulatory could talk to marketing and there would be so much cross-pollination of like ideas and, right. and whatever. Everyone's just podcasting in there. Right. <laughs> and then, then it was like also on top of the English stuff. It's okay. Mm. Then we're going to have English first and we're going to have more streamlined. What are they called? Like professional development KPIs in a mm. way. It's like, it's like, mm. are you challenging each other in a meeting in a healthy way? Are you mm. raising your voice? Are you clarifying? Are you paraphrasing? There were like these sort of leadership behaviors mm. that from the top down, like global level down, they wanted the leaders to kind of embed into their daily workflows. Mm. And then it would in theory cascade down to their team members so that everybody, you were just developing this culture of professional development and constant learning, constant growth kind of thing to motivate folks to mm. be their quote unquote, be their best um, right. in like this work environment. So it was all kind of embedded into this. Let's level up everybody. Right. Um, and all policy. through the medium of English language. 
yeah. I mean, it was all kind of layered in with, right. with it all together. Yeah, it started with sales and marketing. So then I would go to the team meetings and observe and then give, you know, certain feedback and whatnot. A lot of it is just being really encouraging mm. um, because for folks to even try was a big deal. Mm-hmm. And very quickly, again, it takes on a life of its own. So in the very beginning, yes, you kind of have to be a little bit more like, Hands on. Yeah, like don't forget, mm-hmm. like okay, let's use English, or like okay, well, how would you say that in English? Like you know, just <laughs> just a little bit more uh, facilitating that, mm. but then very quickly the the wheels kind of like catch and then it just kind of goes and snowballs on its own. So folks were actually really proud, and um, mm. once that light switch went off, that's like, oh my god, like speaking English is not scary at all. Mm. You know, speaking English is something I actually feel like I. I'm good at or can improve at and I see it very immediately like how quickly I'm getting better at and I'm sure you see this with your students Kane mm. once they hit that kind of aha switch that breakthrough moment yeah that breakthrough moment it's a game changer and everybody mm. is a lot more actually happy right because they get that reinforcing good feeling that they're proficient they're fluent they're improving and so pretty quickly at GSK yeah that English speaking first thing became pretty normal i would Mm. say just in a few months time and so now it's like full force at gsk in taiwan i mean i haven't been there i mean i left shortly after that project i left maybe like three to six months after Mm. that project so i have no idea i hope so but i I don't i honestly don't know i haven't been back in years years but i hope so yeah what do you think about other companies i mean just your kind of educated guest do you think any other kind of multinational companies or or maybe you know that are actually kind of doing this kind of system i have no idea i think i've been out of the corporate game for too long kane Mm. i actually i'm like racking my brain of other corporate because there's not that many multinational companies in Taiwan that have like hundreds of employees. Right, exactly. Google is one that comes to my mind. Um, yeah, I'm, I guess I'm too far away from those big companies that are here. Mm. I don't know. Yeah, and it seems like it could only work in a big company, right? I mean, like these smaller companies, there's no way they have the time, resources. Or, or need, maybe. Or need, exactly, to yeah. do that. So, okay. But you didn't have too much pushback at that time? Um... Whether there was pushback or not, I'm sure there was maybe pushback just that I didn't personally (laughs) uh, was not privy to. But from what I could see when I went to observe the meetings and stuff and, you know, I'm I feel like I'm a pretty non-threatening persona. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. I'm not like the boss. I'm not like anybody. (laughs) Right. I'm just there to kind of be a support for the folks if they need it. Mm. Um, So from my perception, it was fine. Mm. Although I would imagine that any time with change, you know, there's going to be some pushback but the benefits will outweigh the initial discomfort. So when you stopped working at GSK, was that kind of the transition to this OK Sensei or? Yeah, so that was like the year that I did the research Mm. to actually like do all the interviews and do the observations and to teach myself. So I took on a few students just temporarily, you know, little kids, adults, and I volunteered taught at like a public vocational high school for a couple classes. So I really wanted to kind of be in the field with all these teachers and kind of go through what a teacher has to go through Mm. in all different kind of circumstances. And we did like a pilot with the school. We did like some experimentation that whole year to kind of figure things out. 
So I also saw on your bio that you began your career in education spending two years as a student teacher in South Los Angeles. Yeah, so that was like very, very early on, right? So, so I went to the University of Southern California. Mm-hmm. For funny folks listening, USC is not in a wealthy neighborhood. You know, it's pretty much smack dab uh, South Central hood. Los Angeles. Yeah. We had a guest, the third guest, Chuck Garcia, actually grew up a couple blocks away from there okay, okay. in a very crip gangster neighborhood. Wow. So, yeah. Wow. And he's like, USC is in the hood. That's yeah. what he said. So. Yeah, very much so. And I don't know if things have changed since, but I was there. Uh, 2003 to 2007 before sort of the revitalization of downtown LA kind of happened mm-hmm. in like the 2010s with all the like luxury condos being built. Right? Yeah. So, so this was like even before a lot of that like gentrification started happening. So it was um, tough, right? But it was really good experience to get that dose of like reality because you think of USC as like these you know, spoiled rich kids, you know, private tuition's insane, University right? of spoiled children. Yeah, like the stereotype, <laughs> right? And it's like, you're in this little bubble, but the irony is UCLA, the rival school, the mm-hmm. public school is in like Bel Air, right? right? Like surrounded <laughs> exactly. by mansions. And it's like, okay, who's really actually in a bubble <laughs> like mm, versus true. the kids at USC, right? Who have to, I actually think it's a privilege, right? It's an honor to be able to be interacting and hopefully helping your neighbors. Mm. And so the school had a really amazing program called the Joint Educational Project. I believe it's still around. I really hope so. But they gave the students the opportunity to go into the neighborhoods and teach on a volunteer basis at those local neighboring schools for a semester at a time. And you would get student credit for it for your class. It would count as like assignment or like homework credit or something like that. Right. So I did it for four semesters, got to go to four different schools in the South um, Los Angeles neighborhoods. And it was really eye-opening right from this kid from the suburbs, right? Like, what do I know? I was never in that kind of environment and you really see, you know, what these real life students and families, what their day to day is like. And for me, it was so eye opening and, and life changing because, you know, I would have students, beautiful, bright, sweet students who would say like, oh, they wake up at like 3 a.m., 4 a.m. every day because that's when they get their first shift, which is like driving the bus. And the shift starts, at, you know, 5 a.m. or something. So mm. so that's why they wake up so early in the day. And then they actually don't see their mom again until really late at night because she's working like three jobs. Right. And I'm like, wow, these are the things that as a kid that grew up in the suburbs, whatever, like more sheltered like oh does that just happen in like tv shows and movies it's like no that's real life you're teaching this student who like that is her real life Mm -hmm. and um to connect a lot more with folks and it kind of just brings you down to earth and you kind of realize like this impact that you can have to help other people who Mm. are amazing brilliant people and there's no reason that they're in that position you're in your position just just by chance right so it's not like the luck of the draw luck of the draw and i don't know what embedded me with this like response for doing what I could to help other people and like have a positive impact, but probably those early experiences, Mm. um, you know, having interactions with these students was pretty formative experience, I would say. And maybe other students, I'm not sure, but if it had like as deep of an impact on other students, but certainly for me to go to the schools and to see those kids like week after week, it was very, very left a deep impression. And so I think it like made me, want to be involved in education in some way. So then that's why I went to um, work for this nonprofit in education called the, they changed their names a few times. It's the Los Angeles Educational Partnership, LAEP. 
I worked there as the, what was it? I don't even remember my title. Oh, you're aging me, Kane. This is, <laughs> we're going back into the we're archives. We're going all the way back. We're going exactly. like 15 years, <laughs> I, like 15 years ago. I, I don't remember, but it was a very junior position. Like it was like my first job. Right? So it's like very junior position to just help the president of this nonprofit. It was a little old school. So this woman was like in her <laughs> 80s oh, wow. or 70. Yeah, she was very she was very Elderly. experienced. Yes, she was very experienced. <laughs> Peggy Funkhauser. I still remember her name. She oh, was, that's a funky name. Yeah, it was a very that's memorable. Cool. Peggy Funkhauser. Um, oh, Peggy. Very wealthy woman from like Maine or something. I'm not sure. And then she and her husband lived in like the hills of LA, like near the Getty or something like, I think from old money, maybe, I don't know. But she was really, really committed and dedicated to helping all the all Inner the city students. kids. Yeah. And, oh. We did, we, the, the nonprofit did so much. There was like so many different arms of what that nonprofit did. And I was kind of like her assist, her executive assistant mm. that would do things with the board. You know, they had like board meetings. I had to like prepare all the materials. And then I would help a little bit on fundraising, looking at what grants we could apply for, helping to put together materials for the grants, helping to write reports on like the after we were funded, you know, mm. what, what actually did we um, do with the money and, and what results did we have? So a little bit on like that kind of stuff, but mostly executive assistant kind of stuff. Hmm. So was yeah. this uh, during your college years or was no, this was your like first, my job first job after yeah. graduation? Yeah, after graduation. Okay. And prior to this kind of program that you were mentioning, did you have any contact with education or uh, exposure to education or was this kind of your first foray into the field? I mean, I want to say that I also knew I had an early, like education was also very much at the forefront of my mind because of where I lived. Mm. So I didn't live in a district in Los Angeles that had good public schools. Mm. So I used, I was not allowed to, I used a family member's address that did live in a good public school district. I right. used that address to be able to go to better schools. So I did have that like very early exposure of like, wow, the public school in my neighborhood is terrible. Mm. But when I use my family member's address, this public school district is really, really good. Exactly. And then I got caught. Oh, no way. Yeah, I got caught freshman year of high school using an address that I didn't live at because they would do like house checks. Oh, wow. And I wasn't there for the house check that they did at like five in the morning or something. Are you serious? Mm -hmm. They used to do house checks because I guess maybe that district was quite competitive and there were probably a lot of students that taking advantage of this possibly loophole. possibly I'm not sure wow. um, and then and then they did the house check I was not there they pulled me into the principal's office uh, I remember being terrified and then the office lady was just like we know you don't live here write down your real address on this piece of paper and you know she was like so stern about it and I was like what do I do like do I just like put another like, address. I'm like, do I lie? Do I like, what do I do? Like, do I just tell the truth? And then I had no, I'm not clever enough to come up with a, a plan. So I just wrote my real address and uh, I had a talk with the principal and this man, uh, Mr. Plourd, and I just LinkedIn messaged him like a month, like a few months ago anyway, just to be like, congratulations on your retirement. Um, but, he, but he really like set my life off on a different course because huh. that day he was looked me in the eyes. He's like, Karen, what's going on? And he did, his eyes were like kind of red, like pink. He, what he said was like, he's like, I feel like crying, Karen, because... I have students on a 60 student like wait list, you know, waiting to get into our school on permit and, wow. you know, to apply for a permit to come here. And then you, you know, 
Just cut in line. Oh, cut in line. <laughs> and and, he, and he, he did say something along the lines of like, he really thought I was an asset to the school. I was only like a freshman. So it's like, why did he think that? But mm. uh, he's like, you're an asset to the school. I'm going to give you a pass, like give you a permit to just stay so Whoa. that you don't have to leave. Yeah. Which was in hindsight, like very, very much life changing because wow. I would have gone to a very terrible. It was when Bush, George W. Bush had his no child left behind um, policy. policy. Yeah, mm. this was around that time. And uh, the district I would have gone to school in was like a school that was like on the list at risk of losing like all losing the funding, funding and all that right. stuff if they didn't improve their test scores yes, for the class. So, right. so I was going to one of those like quote unquote failing schools. Like, mm. like I would have gone. It was a pretty big deal that that principal left me day in a very good competitive district versus I would have had to just gone to a, a mm. poorly performing school district. So maybe those like early instances where I, it was like very clear in my mind that this inequality in education like exists mm. and I'm a product of like the privilege of it. Right? right. And like how it's not fair, you know, right. and, and I should be doing something to kind of make things more equitable if at all possible. Hmm. I mean, that's a difficult and sad part, right? It's such a self-perpetuating cycle. If you grow up in a bad neighborhood, then you are zoned to go to a bad school and that also lacks resources. So you yeah. just kind of hundred percent keep this cycle and going. we talked about this in college like in undergrad i was a ethnic studies major so i studied asian american studies and broadcast journalism but part of my asian american studies track we took a lot of classes political science classes you know uh, sociology like all these different classes related to like social inequality history classes you know where mm. so i was like very much being indoctrinated into <laughs> these kind of things of like mm -hmm. oh my god capitalism you know right. everything is stacked against poor people people of color like all mm. these things are just like i was like this little ball of rage you know when i was learning all these right. things about our history in america and all these things right so just like i have to i'm like being called to bring something positive mm. to this like unjust kind of world where right. everything is kind of stacked against um folks and you know so as an asian american i think it can be very conflicting because sometimes you're on the benefiting side and mm. then sometimes you're on the not benefiting side and that interplay is also really fascinating as well so yeah it was very much a time of self-discovery and discovering my passions and discovering purpose mm. what things that bring me fulfillment like all these things have kind of been percolating right right so you mentioned as growing up as an asian american so you are taiwanese american mm -hmm. so your parents immigrated to the states from taiwan mm -hmm. and then you were kind of born and raised in california yeah or? born and raised yeah but my mm. sister was born in taiwan oh i see yeah. okay do you know the reason they left Taiwan? I mean, what was, what's the it's immigrant really story? Fun, yeah, it's a really funny story. Apparently my dad was just this like crazy ambitious person that just wanted to quote unquote achieve the American dream. Mm. Uh, my mom always jokes like to this day, she's like, had we just stayed in Taiwan, like life would have been so much easier and chill because <laughs> They had pretty okay jobs, you mm. know, like unlike I think a lot of my peers actually whose parents did immigrate in like the uh, 70s, um, they did, they weren't like grad students that got, mm. went there on like a, a whatever. Like my dad was a flight attendant. My mom was like an admin at a hospital. Mm. You know, they had, they had no college degrees between the two of them. They just went to like community college or whatever. And my parents went to the States to be very much blue collar workers opening a Chinese restaurant. Wow. In the middle of nowhere in Illinois. 
In Illinois. Mm-hmm. I don't even remember the name of the town, but my sister, who was little at the time, you know, I wasn't born yet. So they settled in Illinois to do this Chinese restaurant. And it was obviously, you know, very hard work, very long hours, not a lot of um, financial success. You know, it was it was really just my dad probably watching too many cowboy movies <laughs> and thinking that becoming a cowboy know, himself. Yeah, I don't know. Like cooking he, Chinese food. Right. Like he just was like really ambitious and and kind of just wanted to see what it was all about, I guess. I mean, that is the American dream, right? I guess so. Just And my mom is just like, ah, oh, okay, I guess I'll I, go with you <laughs> and take our three-year-old daughter. Um, so it was, it was really tough for them. But, you know, by the time I was born, which was about 10 years later, so there's mm. a big gap between um, my sister's age and, and mine, but they were in like much better financial, financial circumstance. Situation. Like mm. it wasn't like great, but it was okay that they moved to from Illinois to California mm. and then started another business doing landscaping and like oh, inter- wow. interior design. Okay. Curtains, cool. gardens, stuff like that. Hmm. That's why you grew up in Southern California. Mm-hmm. Okay. Still not in the a great district because of the no child left behind. <laughs> so so it's not trust me, it's not like, you know, we we were you know, you somehow, Hills. yeah, catapulted from Illinois to California and it was like all good. Certainly not, but I would say better circumstances than probably what my sister had to go through mm. um, with parents who would work at a restaurant until like, you know, late at night and very much her childhood was different. Right. Okay. Can we go back to that volunteer situation at, at USC? Yeah. Those schools. So you said you did it four times. Did yeah. Every single time you went to a different school? Yes. And, four okay. different schools. Yep. Oh, wow. Okay. What are your biggest takeaways or memories from that experience? Just that the system is set up to fail. Mm. When you go to these schools, when you see these schools, you're like in shock. Your body kind of, or like my body kind of goes into shock. Because sometimes I would see like metal detectors. You know, I would see a class with like 50, 60 students with one teacher. You would see overcrowding like to the maximum, like so many kids just almost like trampling on on top of each other, like everything from like the facilities to the teachers themselves being burnt out, uh, not caring, you know, so many issues. Like uh, one teacher would just like scream and yell at the kids um, to get them to behave. And it was more of uh, this corporal punishment or just like, Mm. like really, really mean babysitter. I suppose an adult can only take so much if the kids are really just like every day, day in, day out, you know, whatever. So, and I haven't had that challenging of like a teaching experience, right? So mm. I feel like it's not even my place to say if the teacher was in the wrong or what, you know, I know teachers, I just know that teachers have it really, really hard. Mm. They have one of the most difficult jobs in the world and they're underpaid, mm-hmm. you know, and unappreciated. We're leaving like these precious assets, right? Like our children, the most precious thing. Mm-hmm. And then you're letting this adult have such a possible impact on the student, whether it's good or bad, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like, how do we not treat teachers better in this type of a system? Mm. It was like system failure was my initial impression, like going to these schools. It's like, oh my God, like system failure, system failure. This is a systemic thing. This is, mm. this is not, it's not just the teacher's fault, right? It's not just the student's fault. It's like this whole entire ecosystem is set up for failure. Right. When you have public schools that are being publicly funded from the taxpayer dollars in poor neighborhoods. It's just, yeah. it's just not going to work. Right. It's exactly. Just, it's just not going to work from mostly from like property taxes too. Yeah. There's just nothing there. Right. right exactly. It's, it's, it's really sad. Hmm. And then the whole brain drain and all that kind of stuff too. Right. So everything is just set up to work against these students. And hmm. we did, you know, with the nonprofit, right. We were trying to do so much work 
to make things better. I was probably a little too junior at the time to really be able to measure and, and analyze, did we actually have an impact on the students? I believe we did, but is it just putting a Band-Aid on some of the more systemic problems? Mm. Um, possibly. Right. You know, I don't know. I think we were trying to do things very sustainably and like teaching the mothers like how to be good mothers and parents and things about more like knowledge and education transfer and not just, okay, we got this big, you know, government grant from the LA County District and let's just buy you a bunch of toys and, and supplies and whatever for the students that you have. Mm. I think we were also trying to educate at the same time, but yeah, it's right. always going to be mm. difficult. Mm -hmm. So after these pretty formative and inspirational, I guess, uh, experiences in education, how long did you stay at this nonprofit? And then I know you also went to graduate school to do an MBA. So what about the pivot towards business? Did you get tired of education? Did you get disillusioned with education? What inspired this kind of career oh, yeah. change? Oh yeah, 100%. I think that was around 2009 when I left the nonprofit when the economy kind of tanked. Oh, right after, yeah, Yeah, or was it, or maybe it was 2008. Right. 2008, right around then. Yeah, because I graduated in 07. Um, mm. And like, we weren't getting grant money anymore <laughs> like you know all of oh, the funding the was money dried up the funding was drying up and um you know nonprofit's gonna be tough like salary wise it's it's tough um <laughs> you know and i wasn't able to have like a a sustainable like life on my own like it's not like i was living at home with my parents and saving mm. on rent you know i was entering into like my formative adult years like living on my own paying rent on my own all these things on my own and uh, there was definitely some like financial considerations, mm. you know, can I, is this like really sustainable for me? Then the funding was drying up. Right. And I was like, let's try this like for-profit thing you know like it doesn't it doesn't have to be one or the other it doesn't mm. have to be like so bad to work for a for-profit like it can't it can't be all that bad going against um, all your college indoctrination yeah joining the other oh, side oh yeah i was very much like anti <laughs> so anti-business in undergrad especially the business school is pretty well known and it's mm. just the irony because i went to that business school for grad school <laughs> you know but the irony is like in undergrad i was like so Oh, pff, holier than thou, right? Like, ugh, I'm not going to go into eye banking or consulting like these other like business school students that all they want is like to make a lot of money themselves. Like, I'm going to be like this, you know, social justice, like, you know, whatever. Warrior. Force. Yeah. Oh, God. And it's so like patronized now, right? It's like, ugh, <laughs> that term is... And it was right. It was like a little bit probably too self-righteous of me mm. to just be so naive and like, I'm going to like save the day. So mm. I did. I went to work. This opportunity came up to work for a business that my cousin had started. Mm. Uh, my cousin had started a business in swimming pool management of all things. That's nice um, in California. Super random. Yeah, super random. Mm. Well, but now it's like uh, it's oh, all the, drying the water, up. <laughs> yeah, water crisis, right? So it's like, yeah. oh, can't Gotta win. Gotta keep pivoting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, can't win. Can't win. <laughs> So this business was very much a startup, mm. but like a well-funded one. So mm. we went to purchase existing like mom and pop pool companies around the country. So in case you didn't know, Kane, um, <laughs> swimming pool um, service companies, mm. the guy or gal who goes to your backyard with a pool stick and a filter and all that yeah, kind of stuff to clean your pool. Yeah. Vacuum. And yeah. 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 Uh, usually it's like 
any Joe Schmo, you know, mm. can do it. They're not necessarily licensed, insured, trained, like mm. any of that kind of stuff. Um, so it was a really like fragmented business that the investors, including my cousin, just saw an opportunity to kind of like professionalize mm. and um, consolidate, consolidate and all the back end operations, centralize yeah. it and then scale and, yeah. you know, make lots of money that way. Mm -hmm. um, and then I joined really early on, like the second employee mm. next, next to the CEO who is to this day, like an amazing mentor and friend of mine, such an amazing person. So we had acquired all these companies, right? Like across the country, everything from like HR stuff, billing stuff, customer service of marketing stuff, all the like facilities kind of stuff, like managing trucks and inventory and credit cards. Like you can't imagine like how much operational things have to be streamlined be streamlined yeah. when you're growing from like zero to like 100 plus employees because we would hire the techs as like employees too because that was like mm. a big differentiator it's like we're not just like contracting these people out we're paying taxes and they get all the benefits and blah 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 so there's this whole entire hr piece and then there was the business model like figuring mm. out the business model are we servicing residential accounts and that's it are we servicing commercial accounts and what kind of commercial accounts are we franchising and turning this into like a franchise operation where we take on a bunch of franchisees across so it was very much in like the early days of figuring out this business and how mm. to scale it so i was there for about like three years kind of wow. like growing out the very beginnings of this um, machine that had been set in motion because they had already acquired all the companies. So we had a roster of customers that we had purchased already. So we, right. we were servicing like thousands and thousands of accounts Wow! all across the country. It was such a amazing job. I have to say yeah. it was, it was so much fun. It was so much experimentation and learning all the possibilities of a funded startup. Wow. So like we were, we were funded, right? So it was, it was very much. My, you can just go. Yeah. My yeah, boss was, decisions yeah. Go. My boss was like, oh, like let's um, do some ads targeting. Like I think for one, we were trying to target like Chinese language, wealthy homeowners in like, mm, like, like Asian. Arcadia. Yeah. Like Asian neighborhoods. <laughs> and they're like, let's do a commercial or like, you know, do, do something marketing, whether it's commer mm. TV, commercial, radio ad, like whatever. And I was like, what's the budget? And he's like, there is no budget. Like, just, just go, just go just do something. Go. Yeah, just we just need to grow. So like get the customers or whatever. So I wasn't used to operating, go from like a nonprofit right. environment where it's like very like much. Note yeah. down every single plus every or minus. Every single cent is accounted for and you have to be real scrappy mm -hmm. um, to like suddenly this like funded startup that it's like, just go. The yeah. sky's the limit. Like just, just, we just need to grow. We need to execute and we need to perform. And so I was like, okay, wow. this is new. This is cool. Yeah, I think that's kind of what made me really enjoy the business the aspect business of aspect. things. Yeah. So was this pre-MBA or? Pre-MBA. Oh, wow. Okay. Pre-MBA. So you went in and oh, almost yeah. I got was a like, three-year MBA. Uh, pretty much. Yeah. I was like super clueless, right? Like learning everything kind of on the job and like from my boss. And I don't know if I was doing a really good job or not. He kind of jokes and says, oh, I, I was maybe doing too good of a job because he, he didn't scale the team probably as quickly as he mm. needed to or could have because mm. I was just like wearing so many hats. So I was probably not doing anything very well, but I was at least like keeping it together <laughs> enough, you know, that you couldn't see that the wheels were coming loose until later, okay. which can be a blessing and a curse. Like yeah. now as a business owner, I, I kind of understand that perspective where like, it's a big trade-off if yeah, you, have you have somebody who can, well. yeah, it's a trade-off. Um, so anyway, when I, when I left, I left to get my MBA. So that was also kind of inspired by 
Um, my old boss, who has had his MBA, he had done management consulting for a number of years, and he worked in the tech industry, like back in the internet heydays, like in the '90s. Mm. Um, worked at like GoTo and Yahoo, like some mm. big tech companies. The first back bubble, then. <laughs> yeah, the first bubble, right? right? And he didn't, he didn't, uh, he didn't pop. strike it big. Yeah, oh, he, he didn't. <laughs> I mean, he didn't strike it big during the first wave. So that maybe this is his like second foray um, mm. later in life. So it kind of was like maybe I'd be interested in consulting. You know, mm. I just I just had like this a little bit of a chip on my shoulder, I would say, because um, I didn't have the like blue chip kind of stuff on my resume mm. that I thought I needed to like validate my like, right, your you know, worth. yeah, it's like if you don't have <laughs> you don't have an Ivy League, you know, on your yeah. resume, you don't have like a big brand, I don't know, a bank or like Kellogg, you don't have any kind of brands, right? I was like this mm. random kind of mishmash of things. And I think I did have a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. Um, mm -hmm thinking that I needed to get some validation mm. um, from So that from prompted whatever. you to go back to USC to do an MBA? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, after these three years of like working hardcore in this really exciting and rewarding startup, what did you learn during your MBA time? I mean, do you think that it was worth it and that it added on, that it provided that extra value? Because it's also expensive <laughs> as well, the MBA, so... Oh, 100%. So I did not go to do the MBA with the intention to learn anything. <laughs> it's going to sound really bad. And I don't know. I think maybe mo maybe a lot of people do go to an MBA to like learn things. But I went very much to get into the recruiting cycle. So I was there for a very black and white reason. It was like, Access. okay, I'm making a good enough salary right now, but I want a two exit, you know, mm. how do I, how do I like make more money? Mm. And to me, maybe it's not true anymore, but back in, oh my God, it wasn't even that long ago, but like 20, you know, 2012, 2013, that time, it still was very much like a channel to get into these like high paying six figure type of jobs, right? That right. were reserved for like post MBA. So I very much went into it thinking I just needed to get into the recruiting cycles and recruit mm. into a, a competitive job. Oh, wow. Okay. It was very black and white. So you were chasing the McKinsey dream. Yeah, very much so. Very okay. much so. And you kind of did, right? I mean, after graduating with the MBA, you went to GSK immediately? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it very much was like... You paid off. Yeah, it did. I mean, it was a very fortunate thing that... The program I recruited into, I don't know if they still really exist these days because of like the cost associated with it, but it was one of those general management slash commercial leadership um, programs where like it would a be trainee like, program kind of yeah but like a post MBA one okay. so it's a little bit even like more elevated so you were signing up for four years and three out of the four years were international rotations. Mm. So you would, they would put you up in like a house, you know, get you a car, like whatever. If you had a family, I think they would, you know, pay for tuition for kids. Like they were very generous with these like quote unquote expat packages or whatever. Mm -hmm. So again, I don't know if they exist anymore, but GSK is a British company. So it still right. had a little bit of that like holdover of the stereotypical. It would be like a European man, right? With his wife and three kids. And then they would move to Cambodia or they would mm -hmm. be based in like New Delhi or, you know, wherever around the world. And they would expect <laughs> these expats. Executive. Right, right, right. And then they were put in these like really tough situations so that they would learn how to deal with different situations from different markets, whether it's an emerging economy or a, like a developed one and then different roles. You know, you do finance in one role, you do ops in the next, you do supply chain, you do, you know, so, so, wow. so they really like kind of the idea was to put you through the gamut to have all these different experiences. And then you'd go back to your home country. So this, let's say it's a stereotypical European 
you know, exec, he would like go back and be like the VP of whatever in whatever home country market. And he got this a high role, mm. high grade role because mm. he had already been through like his previous three years was maybe like six years, you know, equivalent of in terms of like experience and whatever. So mm. he could like go into a higher position. So I think these programs like in theory are kind of set up that way. And um, I was fortunate enough to be recruited into the North American version because they would have the were, were called like Esprits. They would have Esprits based at like all around the world, but mm. but North America would only have one each year. Oh wow! Okay, yeah. so how did that work? This actually reminds me of one of our previous guests, uh, James C, who went to West Point. It's a you know prestigious oh, yeah. uh, military academy, and it's a little bit similar. You you go into this like four year post and really have to kind of serve and train and go out into the field, the local market. Um, but you got one of the coveted spots, the yeah. North America, the only one North American spot every year. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Very coveted and very. Um, you're expected to perform. So this is not mm. like rainbows and butterflies, right? It's like, it, it can seem like it on the outside because right. they're, they're like, well, nice yeah, position. it's like this, like this, like this. Like, um, but it's pressure. There's a reason, you know, it's like my old boss used to say, like, nobody's going to pay you six figures to just like chill. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, it's like, it's a lot of Gotta hard work. Produce. Maybe now it's easier because inflation and whatever. And then like <laughs> programmers, I think like people who can write software, like they have it so cush because like, so true. Yeah. Because like, you know, what they can do is just so, so valuable. But for somebody with no technical skill set, post MBA, you know, if you're gunning for um, something in marketing or sales, that is not something super specialized or niche. niche yeah, yeah right. like you just got to execute and like have a PL that you manage and like you're doing the day-to-day -day kind of stuff, managing the business decisions. And it's a grind. It's a grind. How long did you do the North America position? Every year you rotate. So I was okay. in North America for a year. China, I didn't last for a year, but I did, my, <laughs> I did do my role in China and then I went to Taiwan for my third role. Okay. So what happened in China? You were stationed in China. Oh my God. Can I tell and my China story? how was story? that war zone? <gasps> Can I tell my China story? I would love to tell my China story. Kate. You should tell it. It's like one of the most traumatizing things that's ever happened to me. I remember the first time you came by. I, did I tell you already? I, I heard a bit about it, but <gasps> I, I want to I I hear this again. I did tell you. Oh my God. I told you the China story. Exactly. I don't Tell remember. Us. I must have blocked it out because like <laughs> I didn't want to revisit. I know. Such you, were, like, you were sweating and closing your eyes, but I, you told me. I didn't want to revisit <laughs> such like traumatic memories. It's like worse than the West Point stories. Wow. Is it? It's like war stories. Oh my God. Yeah, <laughs> war stories. That's true. What happened um, in China? You were in Beijing? Yes, I was in Beijing. So I'll start from Jersey a little bit. So mm. Jersey, I launched Children's Flonies. So that was mm. what I did in in New Jersey, which is a nasal spray. Is it that is, right? It is a nasal allergy spray. Oh, I'm okay. so proud of you. Yeah. I'm so proud of you. Yes, <laughs> nice. it is. It is a allergy nasal spray for children. It's the exact same formulation as the adult brand. So if any oh. folks out there are using Flonase, children's Flonase. So it came the year after the adult brand launch. And so, so I had the marketing budget to basically execute and sell um, children's Flonase in North America. Mm. And then, so that was allergy category. In China, I switched categories to pain management. So we have like a completely different portfolio of pain management products, especially in China. There's mm. like China specific brands. So it was like Fenbid in Chinese it's called Fenbida. So it's like a very, very popular brand in China, maybe like 60, 70 share. Like it's just a very ubiquitous brand for pain management in China. Like an analgesic, like a... I think it's just like, it's like Advil. Okay. I think it was just like ibuprofen. Okay. Yeah. And then the other brand was like Voltaren, which is like more of like a gel. 
um, muscle kind of stuff. And then, so those were my two brands in China. And then my role also switched. So in North America, it was very much like daily execution. This product is in market. You need to sell it. In China, it was called innovation, marketing innovation. So you're launching this new product in foreign market. five to 10 years. Yeah, like long, much more longer term mm. planning. So it was a lot of like research and mm. doing studies to gear up for this like potential launch in five to 10 years. So we were launching a migraine drug, again, long term. What needed to be done like today is all the studies and like doctors, HCP kind of recommendations and learning about how they prescribe, um, learning about the prescription behavior so that we could like formulate a sales and marketing strategy to come. So, mm. so this phase of it was just like early, early. Wow. Um, so it all was R and D. Yes. More yeah. so, more yeah. so. And working closely with like medical and regulatory, I think in China it was called like government affairs, yes. uh, which it's a whole thing right in China and a lot of ambiguity in China. Again, I can't speak to how it is today. I have no idea, but in 2016, Mm. um, at that point in time, you know, it was still very much like wild, wild west. And a lot of things were not clear, you know, on, on the rules and regulations and, and all this kind of stuff. So wow, really fun, amazing space to be, you know, like sky's the limit. And, and there's, I really enjoy actually like ambiguity and Mm -hmm. kind of trying to make sense of things and problem solving, like I love all that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, and then, so, so we, I would visit the whole team would visit first tier, second tier, third tier, fourth tier, possibly, um, cities all around China. Mm. It was just like drinking from a water hose in terms of like the learning because the landscape is so different there. Even like first tier cities, city to city are totally different places. Like if you go from Beijing to Shanghai, they're completely different. Oh yeah. And second tier is so much smaller, but they're still enormous. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So we would go to like Nanjing, Chengdu, Shanghai. I think we did Wuxi. um, Chongqing. No, I don't think I oh, ever wow, went there. Really? I okay. never went there. And no Xi'an? I, I, mm, nope. Okay. Nope. We only, I guess the budget, we, only, we did like four cities at a time kind mm. of thing for each time. And then we would interview either the HCPs, the doctors themselves, or we would interview consumers mm. on, on how they treat migraine. And it would be a lot of the initial research on stuff and then compiling the insights and then so uh, focus groups pretty much yeah like yeah. a lot of hcp hcp wouldn't be focused hcp was like one-on-one right. and then the focus groups would be for the consumers i also had like a little bit of project work on voltaren which was in market execution because at that time the products were already in market and i just needed to do like i think we did like vr demo videos for the doctors mm. this stuff was very much like classic brand management kind of stuff very similar to the children's phonies we're just developing marketing activities that go straight to the hcps mm. themselves those were like my general duties in a nutshell hmm. managing all that so what was the problem the problem was <laughs> having a horrible horrible boss horrible boss okay name withheld oh yeah for sure yeah i don't want to get sued <laughs> <laughs> so this hypothetical boss what was the problem what was the problem <laughs> honestly i think i didn't understand the culture Mm. Um, as much as like, I think I was just completely clueless as to what kind of environment I was entering into and did not know anything about managing interpersonal skills mm. in a cultural context. My, my boss was actually Taiwanese. So not, right. not from China at all. She's Taiwanese. And, um, 
understanding the personality of the person who's going to be your manager, mm-hmm. understanding their, um, you know, quirks, quirks and, and stuff. Yeah. yeah. And like what they value, what they don't value, like how they operate. I should have done a lot more research into like this person and mm. who they worked with before and what like a lot of colleagues would say about this person. Mm-hmm. Like, is it good things? Is it bad things? Is it a mix of both? And just like know what I was walking into, like eyes open. Mm. And then you kind of know like what the, quote unquote game is and then you like know how to play it and there's like certain rules that you can like adhere to and I just went in completely naive completely unaware Mm. that actually this is a case where I have to adjust culturally and there's things I should and shouldn't be doing shouldn't be saying very much did not do that so um, one of the first things that I remember having a conversation with this person when I was already in Beijing was like my housing so it's like oh she's like "Where, where are you living and I'm like I couldn't hide it. It was like, mm. it's the building's like right there. So our office is right here. My apartment building is like counted the steps, like 50 steps, mm. just walk like right there. <laughs> so like <laughs> I could like walk out the front door of my apartment building, 50 steps and then and get then to the GSK get, office oh, building. Wow. Okay. Yeah, because it was like right next to each other. The wow. buildings were In next Chaoyang? to each other. Uh, fourth Ring Road. Oh, okay. Okay. Fourth yeah. Ring Road. I couldn't hide it, right? Nor mm. did I think I needed to, but I was just like, oh, right there. They point at the building. Right. What's wrong and with that? And then she was like, oh, you know, the company is not that good to me. They don't pay for my housing. They don't provide my housing. I live like way out in the way 20th Ring Road. Like, or something. And also, my Chinese <laughs> was not good at the time. I mean, mm. it's still not great, but it was very, very bad then. So I didn't quite catch the tone. You know, you kind of had to read between the lines. Mm-hmm. And I. I just like very literally was like, I think she's just saying the company like doesn't pay for her housing. And then I was like, maybe I should be a little sympathetic. And then I inst- I asked, like, I was like, oh, then where, where do you live? And she was like, you know, pointing somewhere like far, like, <laughs> like, like 15 minute walk from here, like down. And maybe the way I asked it or like the fact that I even asked it, she was mm, just kind of annoyed. Like this young girl. Like, coming yeah. In. Like, are you rubbing it in that? Mm. Like, you don't know where I live. Cause I should have knowing the culture better now, right? I would have been like, oh my gosh, they don't like, what do you mean? Like, you're so senior. Like, you know, I would empathize more and be like, you know, they only pay for me because like, I'm like a foreigner, right? So that's the only reason it's not like, because I'm more senior or, you know, Mm. whatever. I'm not senior at all. I'm not senior at all. Yeah, that's a big thing in Asian culture, right? The hierarchy. Yeah. And also, if you don't really understand the point of certain programs, like the one that I was in, a lot of things can be misconstrued. It can look very unfair. Yeah. And yeah. maybe the, I think it was HR didn't do a good enough job, like aligning, you know, and making sure this manager kind of knew like what this program was all about. And like with mm-hmm. me, so it was like a triangle triad of, we all just like did not communicate. Yeah. Did mm-hmm. not communicate, had weird expectations, all these things. And so my old boss, I guess I can't fault her too much for having like crazy expectations. Cause she mm-hmm. was like, okay, this person's getting paid close to what I'm getting paid probably. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause mm-hmm. I, I have no idea, but a U.S. salary is going to be a could lot. Could be more. Yeah. A lot more than what Very a likely, salary, actually. you know, in Asia could be. Yeah. And like, she could see all that because in our workday system, whatever. So she's like, wait a minute, this person's getting paid close to what I'm getting or possibly more. I, I doubt it, but she was quite senior, but mm. probably not too far off. And then and on top of that housing, right yeah, building. on top of this housing and like whatever other things, like, I don't know what she was making up in her mind, but she was probably like her total comp package is like all the benefits of all that she was like. And so she probably expected me to come in. And she did tell this to me, like at one of our check-ins or whatever, marketing director level, which is like, 
I don't know, two, three pay grades above. Like I was an associate brand manager in mm. Jersey, like in terms of like the title, the right. formal title, you're an associate brand manager. Then you become a brand manager. Then you become a senior brand manager. Then you become a marketing director. Mm. You know, there's many, many layers. And to go from an ABM to a marketing director usually takes like 10 years, yeah, you know, like exactly. in the US, like, and then she's coming with that already expectation based on just like superficial things like salary and like whatever. Right. So mm -hmm. she's just like, and also in Asia, I think the titles are not um, completely congruent with us market as well. Like a marketing director in Asia might be equivalent to like an SBM, for example, right. senior brand manager in the US because the right. levels are just off. So anyway, all that is to say she had very high expectations. I could not deliver so quickly. Mm. She expected that to happen within like two, three months. She mm. expected me to learn China in a month. Wow. And I was just like, that's crazy. That's like, impossible. How can you People learn? live there for like 50 years and- And barely figure it out. <laughs> exactly. It's like, I was just like, I don't understand how she expects me to just like pick it up. Whatever. And then she did have other sprees that she would compare me to. But it's just like very not an apples to apples comparison because she would compare me to an Esprit who had worked at GSK for already 10 years, was Indian from India. Um, and she was like, well, he could pick up India market like that. But it's like, how can you compare somebody who <laughs> right. grew up in the States? But I have a Chinese face. Yes. So like, right. I think, and I was also trying to really fit in mm. because I didn't want to be seen as like this like foreigner, you know, right. whatever. I somehow thought that like fitting in would help me. So I spoke Chinese like all the time. And mm. then even my colleagues would be like, yeah, I always forget that like, you're not from here. <laughs> you know, cause uh, they were like, they would, they just see me as a colleague, right. you know, from, cause it's like, it's no, mm. you know, it was very like just day to day kind of normal that they would forget that I was technically a foreigner. So mm. all those things kind of conspired to create this. It's pretty toxic situation. environment. Yeah. The situation that was just insurmountable, I would that say. Got off on the exact wrong foot. Totally, totally from day one. Don't and mess around with titles and money insurmountable <laughs> insurmountable and it of course it just like blew up in my face and i left that rotation early oh wow is oh. there some kind of punishment for that or you just basically asked for like a transfer and that's how you came to taiwan or well then we get into a little bit of like corporate um politics, politics. Yeah. yeah so my old boss kept saying that she would give me the opportunity to volunteer to leave Hmm. So it was always phrased in that way, <laughs> yeah. volunteer to leave. And I came to learn that like, actually she had had a lot of people on her team volunteer that she didn't want to volunteer leave. to leave. <laughs> and, and I think it's because from like an HR point of view, asking mm -hmm. somebody to volunteer to leave is very different than just being like, I want them terminated exactly. or, you know, I want them gone. Or like in my case, she would have had to go to her HR, our H, the China HR to explain why she no longer wanted, cause she couldn't terminate me from the company. Right. She had no friendly like power to, power do, that, to do that, to yeah. like fire me from the company. Mm -hmm. She could only just be like, I don't want her on my team anymore. It was a mm. bad placement, you know, whatever. But she probably would have had to go to HR to like, make that happen and mm. then HR would have asked her to justify it, of right? Course. She didn't want to deal with all the yeah stuff the yeah and, and, and the yeah. explanation that she would have to give she probably had no good explanation, right? Right. Because then they'd also have to hear my side. Exactly. And then I could say all the things, you know, mm -hmm. that, that were so unfair and unjust done to me. And she did, obviously didn't want any of that to see any any light. We mm. just came to an agreement to both. I think what was stated in the email, the documentation officially was we just both agreed mutually that it was in both of our best interests to leave early. Wow. To end the rotation early. So a mutual understanding, an yeah. MOU. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just like uh, the documentation is just 
both parties agree. Right. So they can't it's like just like a friendly divorce. I guess so. <laughs> on paper. Right. Because like wow. she didn't want it to escalate up, obviously. I mean, those are the things that you can't really learn at graduate school, no. right? This MBA. Like these are things you really have to go to another country and then deal with different people, right? Yeah. And take a few cuts and bruises along the way. Exactly. Um, tough lessons learned. <laughs> it's life. Yeah. yeah. So from there, you came to Taiwan. Yeah. We're coming full circle to where you started the GSK here and also leading that kind of educational initiative as well. Yeah. Right? yeah. Okay. I mean, I did have another a supply chain rotation mm. before the chief of staff one that I also did for about six months in Taiwan. So they kind of like eased me in. Um, mm. So the, the supply chain one was, ugh, I'm definitely not cut out for supply chain work, but, but yeah, just... <laughs> Very much the mechanics of working SAP systems and just yeah, a lot that of was back then. That's like pre-COVID. Right now, it's an absolute disaster. <laughs> Supply chain management. I know, wow, I know. Very important though, right now. Important, but like God, super I'm, important. I'm so glad. I'm just like never have to touch that stuff <laughs> again. But yes, very very important. Okay, so you started out your story with these kind of formative experiences in education. Then you got into business, um, went hardcore, dove into the pool, dove into the deep end, so to speak, quite literally into this pool-related business. And then did your MBA, went to GSK, entered the evil corporate world, the pharmaceutical uh, and especially pharmaceuticals as oh well. Oh my God, I was so <laughs> naive, Kane. I was so naive. I was like, oh, it's healthcare. Like, okay, I'll still be helping people. It's not education but it is healthcare and mm. like we're helping people to do more live longer live better all that stuff so sweet, I Karen. drank the kool-aid <laughs> i'm just i think i'm just like really gullible it's true it's yeah you guys are helping oh my god it was <laughs> i learned so much about pharma too to be honest that i was like oh, that's, this a, that's is a whole another podcast yeah that's a whole other <laughs> podcast but i was oh my god i was very disillusioned like oh my god gosh like of course it's like this like you don't want people to like actually get better like if they do they don't need your really? drugs anymore right like we've got to sell stuff so i was like wow, wow. i'm so disillusioned stay tuned that'll be a next next episode with karen chen so disillusioned. i mean just case a great company don't get me wrong but yeah just pharma in general it's like Man, there's a lot of uh, controversy. Yes. Yeah, yeah, let's say that. Exactly. So now it seems that you've kind of come full circle again. But also, I think kind of taking all of that experience and kind of wrapping it up into this as well. That's kind of the sense I get, right? Because Sensei is an ed tech company. So you are marrying education with technology and business. We haven't really touched too much upon tech yet. Um, so why tech? Because the education part makes sense, the business part makes sense from your story. So how did this tech aspect kind of yeah, get pulled in? Good question. Because of scalability. Mm. So like if we need to do something at scale, pretty much the only way to do it is through technology. And there's a lot of businesses in education that get started that don't incorporate much technology, mm -hmm. if any. And the business that you're building there, it's obviously still great, still mission-driven, still could be very profitable, whatever. But it's a very much a model where you exchange your time for money. Right. right? It's very transactional. Mm -hmm. And it will always hit like a limit unless you hire more and more folks onto your teams. And like I personally, from GSK, all that stuff, right? It's like I do not want to manage a big team. Mm. Like not interested. Not like hands-on managing. Not interested. Yeah. yeah, not interested in building a big company that will one day have like hundreds and hundreds of, you know, thousands of employees mm. or whatever. That's, that's not my deal. Really 
uh, like working in small teams. And uh, if you want to achieve scale, like in terms of being able to service like thousands and tens of millions even of of students and teachers, um, you need to use technology and it's manageable with a small team. Mm -hmm. So very much taking like a page out of the playbook for like SaaS businesses. Right. Um, Software as a service. mm -hmm. Taking it as a SaaS product, you know, there's like a subscription model. Mm -hmm. Technically, the target payer could be an English teacher from anywhere around the world, you know, um, using our software, students from anywhere around the world. So the tech piece was really all about like scalability and access. Did you have reservations about jumping into this, right? So you have kind of all this really interesting background. I think that makes a lot of sense for launching this. But were you kind of apprehensive, nervous at all? Or were you just like, I'm so ready for this. I'm ready for a change. I really want to just kind of dive into this because, you know, there is a lot of risk involved, right? Obviously in a startup and it takes a lot of guts. So how was your kind of initial feeling? Um, I think that I will talk a little bit about privilege here, which I, I feel like I don't always do, but I always am thinking about it. Um, Mm. where like, I do think entrepreneurs, most entrepreneurs, probably not all, but most probably have some degree of privilege in terms of, it's not like they have to pay like a big bill to like the next day, or they don't know where the next meal is coming from, or, you know, they have like a lot of expenses. Like you probably have enough socked away, like savings wise, where you don't need to keep pulling in that paycheck, especially if you like quit your job to start a company. I know a lot of folks will do a side hustle right before they're ready to full on commit. But for the folks who do just quit, like in my case, left GSK Mm. to start Sensei, it was only because I was able to save a good amount of money and like have that leeway in terms of like personal finances and having to pay bills every day to like take a chance, to Mm. take the risk on starting Sensei. The good thing is tech, can mm-hmm. be very low cost, especially right. if it's just software. There's no hardware um, mm. investment that has to be done. So it can be a pretty low cost investment and your team will be the highest cost. Mm-hmm. And if you can manage to recruit folks who will work on sweat equity or for a very like um, reduced salary, it's actually manageable too, but that's not always possible or easy for a lot of folks to be able to recruit team members who are willing to do that. Mm. Um, so a, a little bit of network possibly is needed there how did you find your team speaking of finding the right team and then that sweat equity you have uh, a guy named lucas who is your technical lead right i also met him last time Um, he came by the office with you and then also uh, priscilla wong who is a product manager were these people that you had already known or were you just kind of networking and looking for people yeah i will say that the problem you're trying to solve has to resonate with your team. Mm. And I really have fallen in love with the problem that we're trying to solve. And whenever I work with new folks and bring them on, right, they also have to have that same heart and passion for the problem that you're trying to solve. Because if they don't, it's not gonna work out long-term because building a startup is so hard that you need the mission, you need the vision, you need that to be like so incredibly motivating. Yeah, Yeah, like you really need to be aligned on that kind of stuff and make it so values-based that like people will be willing, right, to work really hard and make this problem, you know, solvable or like at least- some sacrifice a lot. Right, 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 right. So very much um, we are like values-based. So like Lucas, Pre, everyone on our team has heart for what we're trying to do. Like either they've taught themselves, Mm. you know, as teachers, they struggle with the same issues or they were language learners themselves Mm. and like struggle with the same issues. So there's a lot of empathy, right, for the teachers and the students that we serve. And that has been very, very crucial, 
I think being able to both attract and retain mm. the talent that we have. I've been like so fortunate and I'm so appreciative for the folks that have decided to kind of help out on our journey in terms of building Sensei. So Lucas, um, CTO, he did his undergrad studies. He did like exchange year in Taiwan. He loved Taiwan so much that he came back for his master's. Mm. And then I think he's he, from the Czech Republic. He's from the Czech Republic. And then he did this program called Anchor Taiwan, which was run by Lisa Chu, who's amazing in her own right. And then I met Lucas through that program because I think I attended some of their events. Mm. And at the time I had pitched Lucas on Sensei and he checked out some of the voice tech and he was like, it's not quite there yet. Mm. It's not accurate enough. It's not able to really like pick up on accented English. And like there was some issues from like the technical side that made him hesitate in terms of really feeling like he could work with me to build something. And then I see him like a year later, we did, um, a startup competition together. We did like a mm. hackathon, a little weekend hackathon in Taipei. Oh, wow. Yeah. I think it was like September of 2020. It was when the hackathon took place. And that was when he like revisited the tech. And huh. he was like, oh my gosh, Karen, like just in a year, the tech has like improved so much that like we can do something now. Oh, wow. Because there's enough analytics on voice huh. that can be automated through AI. So the tech had advanced in only a year to the point where Lucas built an MVP for us. So you said uh, at the outset that you're not a tech girl. I'm not. So yeah. Uh -huh. So how did you create this technology in the beginning before having a CTO? Oh my gosh, it was very, very difficult. But I got some really good advice from friends who were technical and they were like, why do you even need something to be coded? Mm. You can test this with just mockups, whether it's like a really nice mockup in like Figma or like Adobe XD or something like that, where it's like actually like made to look like a real application. Mm -hmm or even just drawings. It could be anything that's mimicking this. You just need some stimulus for the students to like respond to and like right. see, observe how comfortable they are speaking on these things. So it just like planted a lot of like creative ideas for me to be like, okay, maybe jumping straight to get a developer to write a single line of code, like mm. that that's jumping like way too far. Mm -hmm. Like there's so many little itty bitty things to just like validate along the way. I created these like horrible looking, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed. Uh, <laughs> horrible looking mockups in like Adobe XD, I think is what I use. And I mm -hmm. just like found pictures on the internet of like little animals and I'm like <laughs> click and drag them in. And then I would like show them to my friends with kids and be like, what does your kid like do? Like, can you send me a video or like tell me what they did with it? Mm. And I got feedback from my friends who were like, yeah, my kid just like started counting like one, two, three, four. <laughs> or like, you know, my kid didn't quite know like that she would just be like bear you know like whatever so we were just like starting the very very beginnings of like of what a tech product yeah just like mm. what is the interaction when kids see some stimulus on like some kind of screen right. and like what's the um willingness to speak and the willingness to engage and all that kind of stuff um so those were like our very very early on before lucas um and i remember saying to you kane like the name for sensei came from her husband there was like a woman i was working with in the very very early days she built the back-end algorithm for a i think it was for geometry no physics mm. it was for a physics e-learning platform that used like ai on the back end to grade um, the students like assignments. Hmm. And so she could do like the back end algorithm and had experience training algorithms and stuff like that, but she could not code a front end. So that was where we were like a little bit stuck. So for that, for our front end, I think we just um, had 
teachers record students actually just using either Vocaroo or like a, their phone, and then they submitted us the voice recordings of the students. We would just manually tag in and be like, "He said this wrong, this wrong, this wrong. These were all the mistake words." And we just like manually mocked up a report and gave it to the teacher, who gave it to the student, and we're like, "Is this information helpful?" Wow. Yeah. So it was very much just like manual, like me listening to like hours and hours of like student recordings and like manually creating these like reports. And then wow. we submitted those reports, and then the feedback was like, "Oh my god, yeah, the report is so useful because now the student knows like they made this mistake five times, they made this mistake ten times,、mm. they made this mistake." We did like little things like that to like validate what we were trying to do with Sensei. Yeah, that's awesome. You were talking about bootstrapping. That's like really、yeah. bootstrapping it. Just、um, like doing everything manually if you can. So for non-technical people, I would just say it's totally possible. Just be creative about how you design the experiment、mm. and without writing a single line of code to get to like the insight that you're trying to get to.、Right. So I think it was enough validation for us to be like, okay, there's something here. Let's keep going. This. Merits, yeah. Like it's not like the kids just see and they're like, don't engage at all. Like they all do engage. So we're like, okay, this is probably worth trying.、Mm, okay. So can we talk about the products、uh, more specifically、mm. now? So what exactly is Sensei? It is a tech platform, but what exactly does it do? What kind of、uh, yeah. customers or clients or students are you targeting? Yeah.、Um, so we modeled Sensei very much after big global platforms like Kahoot. Flipgrid. There's all these platforms, right, where the teacher can create whether it's like a mini quiz or an in-class kind of exercise or homework assignment that the kids do later. That the students do later. I always call them kids, <laughs> not necessarily kids. <laughs> students do later, and it works. It's a way to have the students respond to something that the teacher has created. In our case, it's just very, very specifically a speaking exercise. So.、Mm. The way the students respond to it is by recording themselves and、mm. responding to it. Whether it's reading the text that the teacher put in, answering the question that the teacher has posed, or you know the teacher can also upload an image, and then the student has to like tell a story about the image or describe the image, like whatnot. We we really leave it open to the teachers to use the platform however they like, whatever suits their classes. Which is exactly like how Flipgrid and, and Kahoot and other platforms like that are, right? It's just a tool. It's just、mm-hmm. a platform for the teachers to do what they want with it. To get students to speak more, and then I suppose there's an assessment quality、yeah. to that. So、well. the first part of it is just like getting the student to speak, right? And we make that very easy for the teacher to create an exercise to put in the stimulus for the student, and then on the back end. What we do is offer the AI analysis on what the student said, so like pronunciation, fluency, what words did they say, so like the speech to text、um, kind of analysis、mm-hmm. we will do. Which I will say, from a tech perspective, I believe that's getting more and more commoditized, like every day.、Mm-hmm. So there's like so many applications now that are embedding voice、mm-hmm. into their product. Yeah. Whether it's it could be like completely not related to voice, or it could be related to voice, but Things like Slack, Discord, communication channels, like everybody is putting in voice, Seesaw, like all these products, and I believe the analysis part of it is becoming more and more commoditized, and、mm-hmm. the AI analytics, all that kind of stuff, is table stakes. Will be table stakes one 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 day probably pretty soon. You just need to offer it.、Mm. So that's the piece we offer on the back end,、mm. and then we take all that data and put it into like a teacher report or student report,、mm-hmm. and then that way all those like analytics can be actioned upon by either the teacher or the student,、mm. okay. so they can see like how their performance is and where are the weaknesses and the strengths. 
What are some typical kind of quintessential sensei use cases? What kind of uh, teachers are using this and in what kind of environments? Yeah, I believe the teachers using sensei, there's an array, but one that is like popping up is public school teachers in Taiwan Mm. Um, is, is a pretty popular TA. And my hypothesis on why is because they have large class sizes Mm. and they also have themselves don't feel like they are very good. In oh, terms the teachers of, themselves. In terms of speaking is my hypothesis. Interesting. That like the teacher themselves probably has some, either it's like self-limiting or I don't know what, but they don't feel like they can uh, really effectively teach their students how to, how to speak, mm. how to speak. So the technology is helpful in that way. Oh, for so, sure. Yeah. yeah. Because the tech involves um, text-to-speech. So the students can listen to what the teacher wants mm. them to say. So they have like a model for it first. Mm-hmm. And then also there's probably a piece of like scalability too, because the teachers used to probably record themselves saying it and then have the students listen and repeat, which is like a really old school. I, I know you mm-hmm. probably know, okay, it's like listen and repeat. It's like a super old school way to, to learn, but like they're, mm. they're still doing it. And then now the teacher's just like, oh great. Like instead of me recording, they can just press a button and then play mm-hmm. the AI teacher um, speak and then they record. So in a way, we're just like replacing the teacher having to record themselves, possibly is my hypothesis on right. why like public school teachers in Taiwan with large class sizes are really gravitating towards sensei and, oh. and, and automates assessment. So I think teachers save so much time because they're like, Ugh, I used to have to like one on one arrange all these you know assessments with the students. And I have like 200 students like and like, how are they going to mm. do that? Right. So, of course, it makes sense to implement technology. Yeah, I mean, that's super helpful. As we were speaking about earlier, educators, they have one of the most difficult jobs. And especially in Taiwan, where the class sizes are quite big, you have to manage all of those things and then you have to teach and then you have to test and then you have to assess. So your solution is kind of helping out on that back end part, right? I mean, automating it and then also making it easier for teachers to assess so that they can spend time doing other things. Yeah. And I think the speech practice is becoming more and more prominent, like in terms of people's expectations, because I think the problem that we've pointed out in terms of people having weak on the whole of all four skills, like speaking is the worst, you know, like Mm. usually it's not it's not a big secret. Right. It's like like (laughs) most people know that and most people will intuitively know the reason is I really don't have the opportunity to like ever practice. So it also makes a lot of sense for those folks to start using tech apps Mm. to practice speaking as well. So we've just kind of like married the two. And I think the timing is really great, right? Because the government, at least publicly, is pushing this bilingual 2030 initiative and really trying to invest. I don't know how much money is actually being invested, but at least investing in PR marketing and other kind of things to make Taiwan more competitive on the international stage. 100%. And so that's hopefully going to be like really good trade wins to kind of like take us forward and we can have some kind of um, real solid proof of concept in this market. Mm. And then try to replicate it in other markets. Mm-hmm. So what have been your biggest challenges here in, in Taiwan? What are, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of challenges. <laughs> so um, many. Yeah. So many, um, so many learnings. I think one would be um, selling to schools mm. is really difficult. And I don't think it's just a Taiwan thing. I think it's like in general, selling into schools is very, very difficult. And it's like, I think it's called like knife fighting where you're just like, mm. um, 
it's just like one-on-one -on -one, and then right. then you go to another school it's like also one-on-one -on -one, uh. and it's like so much work and effort to just like one-on-one -on -one get one sale through it's right. not efficient and effective at all so we tried that and it's really 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 hard and edtech also has like really long sales cycles mm. and everybody's gonna want a pilot want a demo and then you like might be able to convert them if they've been using your product for like six to nine months you know mm. and it's always still going to be like a maybe mm -hmm. and and just you dedicate a lot of time and resources to sell school to school so that has been really challenging and like one of the learnings is like if you can sell at scale in any way so mm. um i got some advice from another founder in edtech on um this is for north america but i think it's also true for other markets selling in at like the district level mm. and like going to like superintendents going to these like associations so there's like superintendents associations there's like these kind of state level or like district level and you can kind of try to penetrate at a higher level then you can possibly get a whole district instead right. of just Rather going like going school to school locally yeah so so one of the learnings has been like putting time and resources to like penetrate sort of like a network at mm. that level instead of just school to school level because you're putting in possibly the same level of energy and effort either way, but your potential number of schools that you'll get at the end is obviously going to be much higher if you go in at the administrator level. Mm. Yeah, Taiwan's market is very interesting, right? Because the market as a whole is small. I mean, it's an island of 23 million people, right? And I just saw in the news today that the, the birth rate is going to continue to decline and the enrollment numbers for, you know, uh, elementary, junior high, uh, high school are, are going to be declining quite steeply in the next coming years. Mm -hmm. at, at least that, that's the projections as of now. So, and there's the Ministry of Education, but below that, there's actually quite a bit of diversity as well. I found in Taiwan with a lot of kind of homeschooling and private schools and other kind of things. So how have you found that kind of process about trying to figure out how to scale this mm -hmm. in Taiwan? Is it do you think it's especially challenging here or do you think that there's some special opportunities here? I mean, we still haven't figured it out, right? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do think that the bilingual thing. So there is a government tender right now for tablets hardware mm. and then software accompanying software so hopefully we'll be part oh, of that nice yeah, yeah hopefully we'll be part of that bidding process so we mm. can get into some schools at some level of scale this coming academic year fingers crossed in terms of other niche type of schools i think it's really important to have a local person who has relationships either existing or you know is always developing new relationships and is like really plugged in because mm. Taiwan, I think is, and maybe it's like this in other markets. I'm not sure. haven't mm. explored other markets yet, but um, Taiwan seems to be like very, very, very relationship based. based. Yeah. It's very relationship based. Like Guanxi. Yeah. And it doesn't even matter what industry, you yeah. know, but education is certainly one of them. Yes. And, and yeah, like if you have the right connections, probably you can get in. But if you don't, it's a uh, very it's difficult. Hard. Yeah, it's a very conservative culture, and there's a lot of protectionism as well. Hundred percent. Yeah. Hundred percent. So, do you think that's an especially big challenge as a Taiwanese American? But you know, you were born and raised in the states, so I would say it's challenging in like the language barrier a mm. little bit. So I can't read or write Chinese very well, and it's flying a plane like half blind because mm. I don't, I can't do like research into like what's really going on, what's happening. Um, somebody has to tell me oh, <laughs> what's happening, and it is a little bit of a disadvantage in terms of like language and not being. 
able to like know everything I could possibly know about the landscape. But I suppose it's also good too, because then mm. you're like more neutral party maybe. And, mm. and for better or for worse, how people want to evaluate me, it's like, I, I'm just like a, I'm a nobody. I don't have like any uh, potentially good or bad, whatever it is that folks <laughs> are looking for. So I can be more of like a neutral party and mm. who's like genuinely just here to like try to do something good for the students here, right? It's like there's right. no other motive than to like have a positive impact. Right. Yeah. To positively impact the English education or the education at large. Yeah, I would say both. I hope we could start with English, but because of the whole, they're trying to do like English level instruct English instruction for other subjects as well. Mm -hmm. You know, so it might be a good adjacent kind of thing that right. also starts to take off because the students will start realizing very soon, and they already have with Sensei that like speaking English is not scary. You know, right. it's you will only achieve good things for your life by trying to speak English. Exactly. And all that matters is to try. Mm. And um, it's just that aha moment. Once it gets unlocked, I think it'll just it'll just kind yeah, of go. Exactly. Yeah. So are you optimistic about the future of education in Taiwan insofar as it relates to English education, especially? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I guess I have to be. <laughs> uh, Self-preservation. No, 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 right. no, I'm just kidding. Um, I think I am. I think it's a step in the right direction if the government really is like committed to, you know, all these like education initiatives. Mm. I do hope that the money ends up going to, you know, the right, the right places. Right places. Yeah. And it's not just like a front for like God knows for what. For, <laughs> for God knows what. I don't know. Yeah. Like, because I think, I believe on paper, there's a lot of government resources being dedicated to like certain things. I just hope that it is ending up in like the right places. And, you know, <laughs> I can only hope that it is. So, speaking to that, what do you think the government could do better in this regard? Oh, that's interesting. What they could do better. I mean, because I think that mm. the intentions are good, mm. uh, but as you're alluding to, there are diversions along the way, mm. uh, especially in Taiwan, I think. Mm. Um, I think the government actually really wants to do these kind of things. And of course, it's beneficial. It's beneficial not only to the government for their own sake, but also for obviously the population at large. As a small island, Taiwan needs just they need to compete on a, almost an existential level, right? They need to compete internationally, whether you like it or not. So mm -hmm. yeah, what do you think if the government is listening or if people from the government are listening? What do you think would be some, you know, much needed reforms or things that they might be able to do to foster a more productive environment? Oh man, I feel so <laughs> bad for like civil servants who like just everyday be ma. Like I, I <laughs> I understand why the government does certain things like in the way that they do it. And I don't always fault them because there is probably a reason I can certainly see like some of the reasons why they do things the way they do. And it's so bureaucratic and all this mm. kind of stuff. So I don't know that I have a great response because I just I empathize with the government mm. on on a level, too. And I do think culturally speaking, we're very used to like Matsumfu, like in general, like mm. whenever there's a problem as a democracy. Right. Like mm -hmm. very much people are going to be like, it's the government's fault. Right, <laughs> like right. and everything always the comes scapegoat. down yeah. mm -hmm. on the government. So when you have a culture, a population that is like so OK with doing that, the government is going to be very very conservative and very very careful with like every step because nobody wants to be the one that like bema and it just 
gets i'm sure like demoralizing and just like you're damned if you do damned if you don't and you just like seem to like never be able to do anything right right mm. so i don't know i just i just want to say thank you to the the <laughs> civil servants that like are put in a really difficult position mm. and i hope that the folks involved really do have the best interests of like mm. everybody in mind. I know like you were kind of going in Kane. It's like, oh, like, yeah, they do have good intentions. Like, I, I think so. Like 90% of me thinks like <laughs> it's good intentions. Yeah, um, I don't only think that, but you know, yeah. giving them oh, some okay, credit. Okay. Like, like I 90% think that, but like we have to point out, right? That money is not exactly a lacking thing on this mm. island. Like, right. like we are a wealthy island mm -hmm. and like this kind of perpetuating like inequality kind of piece in Taiwan. Like, I don't know. It's a very, I'm still, I, I still still think about it I, I don't know if like we're like actually a very equal society mm. or if we're actually like a not equal society i um yeah because the question i asked you is i think more of a top-down question right but what about the opposite what about bottom up what do you think about are there some kind of limitations culturally or otherwise that you think might need to be changed yeah. I mean, how to change that that's uh, another a whole nother story right, right, right. but what are some of those limitations that you see that you think taiwan or whatever or yeah. these people individuals could do better oh yeah i mean 100 percent. that's why we started sensei because yeah. it was like we need to give more opportunities to folks and not just see this life as like that's it status yeah. quo and like if you want more you know if you want and you're willing to work you know a little bit harder mm -hmm. um there is this whole world of opportunity for folks yeah it's very much a bottoms up yeah exactly to your point kane like we can do so much like so much is in our control actually to do better and so when i hear older folks in taiwan that have like businesses and stuff they're like somehow thinking that the younger generation almost like has it too good yeah and they don't work hard you know they just like don't really so lazy and yeah they're just like kind of okay with like this like whatever is kind of thing and i personally do talk to like a lot of young people all the time and i see very different kinds of young people who are like mm. wanting to strive and want more and want more but like they don't think there's the opportunity exactly that's so i'm left kind of like how do i reconcile these like two different realities that i'm seeing arise exactly. and and i just can't quite put my finger on it yet <laughs> in terms of like why it doesn't quite seem to jive yet and right. what is really like going on and i do suspect though that language is a big big thing that is kind of keeping one half let's just say i don't know if it's half but just mm. like a portion of young people like society is in one corner and mm. then the ones who at least feel somewhat okay conversing in english or, mm. or reading and writing certainly proficient in that kind of stuff in another half and I will right. say through just like the experience of doing sensei, I've listened to so many recordings of like adults. They're adults. They're like university students who did not learn how to read. Hmm. Like you can tell they did not learn phonics. They're right. like, they're like guessing. And you're just like, wow, how, how did we like fail these kind of students mm. who are now like 21, 22 and they cannot read, you know, they don't know that like the E at the end, like cane, you know, they mm. wouldn't be able to they'd be like, kan, kan <laughs> yeah, yeah, like they just don't, they didn't learn the rules of like, it's really like heartbreaking, right? So, mm. so that's hopefully what we can do with Sensei is give people access at a younger age mm. and like try to create some semblance of 
right. more equality. To speak, to express themselves, to engage with the world. Yeah, and not see English as this big scary thing. Right. Because I think the mindset is really hugely self-limiting. Yeah, it's really sad, right? I mean, we've talked about that with a lot of my guests about just the strangling pressure of Taiwanese culture, especially in education. It's really sad for the kids who just don't have that joy of learning and then that joy of, as we're alluding to, of just speaking and connecting, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 100%. So if we can somehow like unblock that, it's a dream, you know, yeah. just to have education be more about the journey and the joy of just right like just not just the result but exactly, the journey the process exactly the process of learning like fall in love with the fact that you can like start here and then learn something new another day and another day and and it's a lifelong thing right and it's not like you're just there to like achieve x goal right it's it or yeah, get I, this kind of certificate or yeah, this kind of diploma or this I kind know, of degree I or know. this kind of job working at gsk or <laughs> right, right. I mean, I, of course, like it's human nature, right? right? Like I've, we've all fallen into those kind of traps. And yeah. I think it's just even more prominent right now in, in Taiwan. But hopefully with time, it will be less exam based and less score based and certificate based. Hopefully mm. I'm, not exactly, I'm not exactly sure when or how, but hopefully that's the direction we're trending in. Yeah, I think that's the way that Taiwan needs to go. And I think you're playing a very important role in that process. So, uh, oh, thank yeah, you, Kane. Which you is too. Always amazing. If anyone wants to get a hold of you or find out more about Sensei, how would they do that? Yeah, feel free to drop me an email anytime. Um, it's just Karen, C A R E N, at OKSensei.com. All right. So I just wanted to thank you again, Karen, for thank coming you. in. Yeah, thank you, Kane. so good seeing you again. So much fun. Um, but I know you have to go and we are uh, running a little bit late now. You're going to be late for a meeting and, um, but you are the boss woman. So oh, stop. they will all have to wait for you. Oh, stop. Oh, stop. <laughs> Kane's the boss here. No, no, no. Oh no. Maybe Mocha's the boss. Mocha is the boss. <laughs> Chilling out, sleeping there. Yep. Mocha's in her throne. Yep. So until next time we will, uh, speak again, maybe, uh, go deeper into some of those other things that we weren't able to touch upon All the this things. time. So exactly. Awesome. But thank in the you. meanwhile, yeah, I wish you the best of luck and, uh, and continued success. Oh, thank you, Kane. Yeah. It's an amazing. Thank you. Thank awesome. you so much. All right. Thank you. Peace. Bye everyone.